it, it all looks great. It all looks official. And the, the link says it's Wachovia.com. You know, it all looks good. And, you know, it's a total scam. And it's, I look at it and I say, you know, that's easy, not hard to figure out. Have you guys, uh, I'm just curious by a show of hands, how many here have received an email, just say in the last three years, that says it's from a, a minister or an ex-minister of some country, might be in Africa, might be in South America, might be in Eastern Europe. They've got a problem, and the problem is this. They've got millions of dollars in bank accounts that they've got to empty, and they're looking for friendly Americans who would help them out by allowing you to put millions of dollars in your bank account. How many here have received these emails? Wow. How many people have responded and said, yes, I'm interested? <laughs> They're scamming. And you're scamming them, aren't you? You know, the <clears throat> I remember one guy online said he loves this. He loves to get those because he just plays these guys forever. Uh, but, you know, the truth is, uh, the truth is people lose money on these because the people putting these out they're trolling the waters of the internet because they're looking for greedy, gullible fish. And you know, if you put enough of these out, you get responses. And you end up with people who will give you their bank account information. And you know, they don't see the millions go in. They see whatever they've got go out. It's a scam, and it's promising something for nothing. And to some people, it looks patently obvious. It's not a problem to avoid. To others, though, it's a real lure. It's a real temptation. And they give in, and they fall. Now, we laugh about these, and I'm laughing at the Wachovia email, but the truth is most of us every day, we entertain thoughts of one, one form or another in which something either too good to be true is in front of us and can we take it, or in which a thought comes up to our mind that we can do something or avoid something. We know it's not necessarily right, but we think that we're going to get something that we want or we, we're going to avoid something we don't want. There's this process of temptation and rationalization and capitulation that takes place for most of us just about every day of the year. James says we all sin in many ways. I assume that means most of us in this room, if not all of us. So all of us go through a scenario in which we're tempted by something and we go through a thought process in our mind and then oftentimes we we commit to that. We stumble and fall and of course the end of it is always Death, just as these people see their bank accounts vanish, death always follows these kinds of temptations in one form or another. We're going to be back in Genesis 3. We're in the account of the first, the original temptation. And loading this on the front end, you guys remember that at the end of chapter 1, when God looked back at the culmination of his creation, he says it's good, it's very good, it's all good. And then we get to chapter 3 and suddenly things change and they change in a hurry. We'll read only the first six verses this morning and actually we're going to start verse 25 of chapter 2 just as a reminder of where we're coming from. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is, in the Garden of Delights, the Garden of Paradise God had made for Adam and Eve. The world is everything it should be, nothing more, nothing less. Adam and Eve are all they should be and nothing they shouldn't be. Life is good. Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. You know, it is just remarkable both how short this is, how simple and basic it is, and we just turn the corner from all is very good to sin and death for all of humanity through all of history in these six verses. It's pretty amazing. Let's walk back through this a little more slowly. First, who or what in the world is this serpent? Right? In the Garden of Eden and in the world, there's only that which is good, which is very good. So where did this serpent come from? What is it? And who is it? 
You know, the text says the Hebrew is nakash, which just means serpent or snake, the serpent. And it says the serpent was crafty, but that just means he was wise or shrewd, using the same ter- term Proverbs uses later, encourages us to be shrewd, wise. But what did this look like? Are you guys with me? Does this sound odd? You go from the creation account to a serpent talking to Eve. And you're like, how did we get there? What is this? And who is it? You know, frankly, that the short version of this is the story tells us almost nothing. And you've got to conclude that it means from God's perspective, at least at this point, it's not important for us to know. We are often curious about things that in the bigger picture, God just says, you may be curious, but that's not what I'm going to tell you about because there's other issues. And that seems to be true in this story. There's a couple things we could say. Revelation 12:9 says the great dragon was thrown down. By the way, this is future the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. We'd say kind of from a big picture, the serpent is Satan. But it doesn't tell us how Satan's introduced into the garden. And is Satan literally, is he the serpent, is he the snake? Or does Satan speak through an animal in creation like he'll speak later through Judas when Judas betrays Jesus? It doesn't say. It, it, we're left to our own devices on this and basically to go on with the story. We, we're not sure of all this. What seems apparent, though, is that Satan in the snake, is the snake, not quite sure, is speaking to Eve. That much we get, and that's the important part. Look at the process that Satan takes Eve through, and I think this is important for us. Whatever, whatever we can or cannot discern about the snake, The process here is important. And by the way, in this account, there's a tempter. The snake is tempting Eve. He's leading her to sin. You and I today, uh, you, you and I will face some temptations in which we are the object of temptation. Someone's leading us in temptation. And in that case, this process becomes very important because... If we, we know that's what's going on, we can be armed, as it were, because we'll see these, some of these steps anyway in process. So whether it's someone you know or don't know who is tempting you, or whether it's Satan or one of his emissaries that's planting thoughts in your mind, images in your head, whatever it may be, and we're not getting into all the ways Satan can or cannot uh, interact with humans or Christians, etc., but certainly he's in the world and his demons are in the world to tempt us today. But you may be tempted towards sin. That's one scenario. But also, unlike even Adam at this point, uh, we have a sinful nature. So, you know, sometimes you get help in sin and sometimes we just do it because we want to. And that's a little shorter route. But the process we're looking at this morning is when we're being tempted by another agency. That's what we're looking at now. The first step in this process in verse 1 is incredulity. That is, something seems incredible beyond belief. So Satan says this, Indeed, has God said. And we can start paraphrasing. Put this in your own words or put in the words you've heard others say. Did God really say that? I can't believe God would say that. I can't believe that what you heard is what God really said. That's just too incredible to believe. It infers something, doesn't it? It infers, Satan implies to Eve, that what she said, what she believes, is so ridiculous that it's not believable. Satan's incredulous that she could fall for something like that, that she would believe something. Surely she misunderstood what God said. Surely she doesn't really believe that if she eats from all those trees, she'll die, etc. Incredulity. I can't believe that's really true. I can't believe you would believe something that simple or that stupid. Incredulity. Of course, this begins a process of doubting what God had said. On the heels of incredulity, I can't believe you believe that Satan twists what God had actually said. When he restates what God said, he doesn't leave it the way God said it. He twists the words and the meaning. Verse 1 again, You shall not eat from any tree... You know, Satan knows God's Word, you see later in Scripture. So this isn't a mistake on his part. It's intentional. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve earlier? They can eat from every tree except one. 
Satan takes God's word and he turns her down and says they can't eat from any tree. It's sowing more seeds of doubt. And what, is it, what does it say about God? It, it casts God in this light that he's a cheapskate and that he doesn't want them to have fun because he's forbidden all the trees to them. All those trees and God says don't eat from any of them. He intentionally misstates, excuse me, <clears throat> God's word. God didn't say you can't eat from any tree. He said eat from all of them. In fact, think of this. In all the world, Adam and Eve could go around, do anything they wanted, eat from every bush, every tree, except one. And Satan turns that on its head. So when the fact is the whole world's open before them, with one small exception, Satan turns that to mean God's forbidden them from all the good things in the world that might be available to them otherwise. Does that sound familiar? God doesn't want you to have any fun. And there's nothing you can do. He's a cheapskate. God, his motive is brought into question in verse 5 when Satan says next, God knows you will be like God's. God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because if you do, you'll be like God. And, and therefore, this implies God doesn't want you to be like God. He's holding something of value out from you. He doesn't want your best. Now, this is crazy, isn't it? Because what did Genesis 1 and 2 tell us when God created Adam and Eve? What did he do? He created them in his own image. They're already like God. They're not like God in knowing good from evil. <clears throat> Excuse me. But Satan doesn't tell them when they understand what good and evil are, it will be because they've chosen evil because they've become evil. Even what he promises is twisted. They will gain a knowledge that they didn't have, but they'll gain it on the wrong side. They'll become evil. They'll know good from evil because they'll become evil. But Satan impugns God's motive. He doesn't want you to be like him. When God had made it clear from the beginning, he did want them to be like him, but he wanted them to be innocent. He wanted them to be free of a kind of knowledge that was not good for them. Satan impugns God's motive. And then in verse 4, he also directly calls God a liar. You will not die. God said, dying you'll die. If you eat from that tree, dying you'll die. Satan says, you will not die. Now we've got claim and counterclaim. Not both of these can be true. Only one can be true. Satan says, God's lying to you. God said, if you eat, you'll die. Satan says, no, you won't die. This is a blatant lie on Satan's part. But he says, God is the liar. What God told you is not true. Don't believe it. Don't count on it. He's holding out from you. You've got incredulity. I can't believe you really believe that. I can't believe God really said that. You must be mistaken somewhere. He twists God's word. God's forbidden you from all the trees. He brings into question God's motive. God's really holding out those good things from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And then he says God's a liar. His word is not true. His word is not to be believed. So all these steps on the front end, they introduce a sense of doubt and alienation in Eve's mind from God. And then that's kind of the setup. That's the temptation part. When you and I are tempted by outside forces, that's often what it sounds like or looks like. It's a process. And then it moves from alienation or sowing the seeds of doubt to looking at the object of your desire. So now Eve's looking at the tree. She's not so concerned about God and what he'd said. Now she's free to focus back on the tree and she gets to thinking. She studies the tree. It's a lovely tree. The fruit looks good. It probably would taste good. Being wise sounds good. The serpent's wise. Later on, Proverbs will enjoin us to be wise. Wisdom's a good thing. It all looks so desirable. And remember at this point, the tree is good. It's part of God's creation. There's nothing wrong with this tree. There's nothing inherently evil about the tree. The only prohibition here is God says, don't you eat from that tree. But it doesn't mean the tree is deficient or bad or evil. And one of the things, this is so important, I think, for this reason for us. Uh, for Adam and Eve, at that time, God said, don't from, eat from the tree, you'll die. But there's nothing at all wrong with the tree. 
And sometimes in your life and mine, we're going to look at things that are inherently good and we'll say, I want that. And you know what God will say? You can't have that. That's not for you. For whatever reason, at, at this time, in this place, that thing that's just fine by itself is not for you. Sometimes you'll know why and sometimes you won't. Baruch is one of my favorite guys in the Old Testament. He was Jeremiah, the prophet's secretary. And you know what's happening in Jeremiah's day? God's tearing down Israel. He's giving them up to judgment. And here's Baruch. He's a good guy. He's a godly guy. He's probably like, stand like you and me. Good guy. And you know what he's thinking? He, he wants a life of importance and significance, probably affluence and wealth. And God comes down to him in Jeremiah 45 and says, Baruch, this is the deal. You can't have those things. Because for you in this place and at this time, I can't, I'm not free to give you those things. I'm going to give you everything I can, which is your life. I'm going to spare your life when Jerusalem is destroyed. You'll live through it. That's what I can give you. These other things, nothing wrong with them in themselves. But they're not for you because of the time and the place you live. Sorry. In your life and mine, there may be things that are fine for others to enjoy that for whatever reason, God knows, in His goodness and love towards you, not keeping you away from something good, but that something good that might be fine for someone else is not necessarily good for you. This, is, this can be a bitter pill to swallow. You know, if you grew up with siblings and they get the, the ice cream and you don't, or whatever, your friend, whatever. Guys, this could be good looks could be health, could be money, could be spouse, could be children, could be business success. It could be any one of a number of things. All things that are fine in themselves. But for whatever reason, God in His goodness and love towards you knows those things are not right for you at this place, in this time, whatever. Nothing wrong with the tree. Eve seen a tree that looks good, would taste good, gives wisdom. All those things are good in themselves, but they're not right for Eve. And they're not going to give Eve what she wants. And guys, the truth is, if you get what you set your heart on that God didn't want for you, I guarantee you'll rue the day. And you'll say, if you could, God, I'll give it back. And oftentimes these things aren't things we can give back. We get something that we really wanted that God would have said, that's not right for you. Trust me on this. We get it. If we get it, it's often to our sometimes lifetime regret. So God's withholding the tree. There's nothing wrong with the tree, but it's not right for Eve. Also, notice in this process, uh, Satan's appeal is not to Adam, it's to Eve. And no offense, ladies, but uh, Satan is taking the path of least resistance here. He's, he's coming in the weak point, if you will, of mankind. Eve is deceived. The text is clear. The story is clear. Paul is clear on this. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself someplace. Where am I at? 1 Timothy 2.14, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Eve was deceived. She was tricked. And then she ate. She sinned. Uh, Adam does not have that excuse. When we say women are deceived, we're not impugning women, and God's not impugning them in this story. But Satan took the path of least resistance. It was the easiest way into mankind, into the couple. When Adam sinned, guys, it was with his eyes wide open. He wasn't deceived. He sinned willfully. And by the way, whenever God talks about the fall, He doesn't say when Eve sinned, when Eve fell. What does He say? When Adam sinned, when Adam fell. It ties us back to Adam, not Eve. Adam is blamed for this, not Eve. But the serpent is shrewd because he's coming in the back door. And think of this. As far as the creation goes, Eve is listening to a subordinate, right? Because Adam and Eve, they're the rulers of the earth. And here's this crawling creature, whatever it is at this point. This subordinate is tempting the subordinate member of the group. In other words, the temptation is coming the opposite direction. God meant leadership to be established through Adam and Eve. And this is interesting to me. You know if you're a family, if you're in a city, a nation, uh, any kind of a group, you don't have to be the leader 
You don't have to be the CEO, the president, the owner, whatever, to bless the group you're a part of or to harm the group you're a part of. You can be the junior member and you can do as much destruction as anybody else. Or you can bless like anyone else. Does that make sense? Eve is the junior partner, but that's the path where sin comes through. When Satan tempts us, when we're tempted, guys, it normally doesn't come at our strength. It comes at our point of weakness. And when you and I are tempted, Satan and fallen angels, demons, they've been at this for a while. And they were smart when they started. And they've refined their skills of temptation over time. So when you're tempted, guys, it's going to be in your path of weakness, generally, not where you're strong. It's going to be where you're weak. You have to ask yourself, what are my weaknesses? You've got to be aware, where in my life am I tempted to fly off the handle? Am I easily offended? Guess what? I'll bet some offensive words are coming your way. Am I particularly prone to lustful thoughts? Guess what? I can predict for your future there's probably some lustful thoughts coming your way or images. Do you see what I'm saying? Where is your character weak? What are the things you desire most? Those are the areas where you can expect temptation. Satan came in the back door, the path of least resistance. And you know, six verses here, we go from everything's good to the fall, sin and death. And listen to this. This is, this is simple. It's, it's subtle. I would expect God to, to hit a gong, blare a trumpet, something about the fall of mankind. It doesn't go that way. It just says this. Verse 6, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. That's the fall of mankind. That's the history of murder, mayhem, sin, death in the world through all of history. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. It's it's ridiculously simple. And you know, the truth is, for you and I, though, we can do the same thing. Sometimes sin is so easy, and it doesn't seem complex, and you just do it without any thought to what's coming, to the things you've set in motion by whatever that sin was. When it says in verse 6, she gave to Adam who was with her, some people believe Adam was with Eve this whole conversation. I just find this hard to believe. It doesn't make sense to me. Adam's there, Satan's got to convince Adam. Doesn't make sense. Also, temptation is best served when someone's by themselves with their own thoughts, free from someone else telling them, hey, that's not true, whatever. I suspect that the conversation takes place. Adam's probably not far away, but he joins Eve after she's eaten or she joins him. He's probably nearby. But this is subtle and simple. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. And guys, all of, all of the history of sin and death and mayhem follows that simple statement, verse 6. Everything's good. In six verses, we've gone to sin and death. So in this process of temptation, incredulity, can't believe that's what God said or meant, can't believe you're stupid enough to believe that, twisting God's word, God doesn't want you to have any fun, He's withheld everything from you, Doubting God's good motives towards us. God really doesn't want you to be like Him. If He did, He'd give you this tree too. Directly calls God a liar. Calls God's word untrue. Points out the desirability of the object of temptation and appeals through the weak spot, if you will, in your life, in this case through Eve. James has a summary of temptation. I think Ken has touched on this recently in his teachings on sin and avoiding sin. James 1.14, when you and I just follow our own sinful impulses, it's a really short list. James says, we're tempted when we're carried away and enticed by our own lust. Lust conceives, gives birth to sin. Sin's accomplished, brings forth death. We entertain our own sinful impulse, our lust. Not that something's necessarily bad in itself, but lust is an unholy or an inappropriate desire for something. could be a desire for the wrong kind of thing, but it could be a desire for the right kind of thing, the wrong kind of desire or use. Temptation follows this other longer trajectory, if you will, kind of go through a process. When it's your own sinful impulses, it's pretty short. We entertain lust. Lust conceives, gives birth to sin. Sin's accomplished, brings forth death. It's, it's the short order version of temptation. 
And the temptations we face today generally follow the same kind of thing Eve did per 1 John 2.16. John says this, All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Import this back into Genesis 3. The fruit was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. Generally, when we're facing temptation from our own sinful impulses or temptation from the world around us, it follows this. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. It's one of these arenas. This is where we're vulnerable. I'm going to take, I'm segueing briefly to talk about a specific sin here this morning. And while I do, can I get a couple people to help and pass these out? These magazines were purchased, excuse me, specifically for this subject, this message. Hopefully there's enough. Uh, one per family, please. If there's extras, great. And if there's not, uh, borrow one from someone else when we're done. Uh, one of the most devastating of temptations today, certainly in the West, is sexual temptation. It's, it's the temptation to sin. And temptation can come from outside. It can come from our own sinful impulses, for sure. It's easy either way. You know, you can read historically about mankind and sexual practices and promiscuity, and on one level I'd say, you know, we have nothing on the Romans, or we have nothing on the Greeks, or we have nothing on other peoples and other times and cultures on one hand. That is, debased, sex has become the center of culture and life, etc., etc. The flip side, though, what we do have in the culture and the time and the place we live today, we have opportunity, guys, that have never been in the history of the world because of our technology. Technology confronts us with more temptation than any culture in the history of the world has faced. This is the time and the place we live today. So just think about a few of these venues. Magazines that come to your house or at the bookstores or at the quick shop when you buy gas. Magazines intentionally tempting. Magazines. Uh, television. And by the way, on each one of these things, you remember we said there's nothing wrong with the tree? Guys, there's nothing wrong with technology. There's nothing wrong with magazines, books, the Internet, television. They're amoral. They're neither good nor bad. They're, they give us the ability to communicate. That's inherently, generally a good thing. But it's what we do with those. It's the way we twist them. It's the use we make of them. But television, 24-7, if you turn on your television, I, I promise you, you'll face Sexual temptation, especially guys. Movies, same thing. And primarily in our day and age now, the Internet. You know, uh, pornography is the key uh, driver of the development of software for the Internet. Pornography is because uh, it's a a multi-billion dollar business in the United States every year. And so the ability to efficiently deliver images and video, this is what pornography on the Internet is all about. Pornography drives the software development for Internet use. It's that big. It's huge. And also, in the past, uh, pornography, sexual sin, and temptation was thought to be a guy's realm. And you know what? Uh, Primarily, it still is today, but... Women, in increasing numbers, are the purchasers of Internet pornography. Remember I told you last week, because women are the pinnacle of creation, they are the most refined element of mankind. When women fall, it tells you that your culture is going under rapidly. Well, women in our culture, I think it's 20 to 25% of the pornographic market on the Internet, are women today. This is a staggering number, because generally this just isn't the way gals are wired. Men are wired visually, and so this is our weak spot, if you will. But the the day and the age, and because of the technology that we have, our culture, we we face more temptation in this area than any people in any time in the history of the world. You know, this tells me I've got to be aware of this, and I've got to be prepared for this. Think of this, too. Uh, sex inherently is good because God created it, right? Uh, God made Adam and Eve. God made male and female. There's nothing wrong with sex. 
So when we're tempted with sex, we're being tempted by something God made that's a good thing. And, and so the temptation, it, it, it appeals to our senses, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It's appealing to us. It, it can give us the promise of intimacy, which all of humanity longs for. It can give us a sense of being personally affirmed. In other words, there's a strong appeal in the area of sex. But think of the devastation... And I've got my short hit list. You've probably got your own short hit list with you of uh, sin con- uh, lust conceives and brings forth sin and sin brings death. You know, a couple decades ago, uh, two of the most prominent television pastor teachers uh, fell ignominiously, publicly, scandalously uh, for sexual sin. One went to prison for other issues and the other was on the cover, I think it was of Time Magazine, memorialized with this weeping face on Time Magazine. Two of the best-known Christian teachers on television a couple decades ago. You know, but it was only last year the head of the Evangelical Association in the United States was caught in a compromising position with another man. I think this was in Denver, Colorado, just about a year ago. In our own backyard in Topeka, Kansas, I've shared this a couple times, but this is still in process a guy who attends a fellowship here in church that everybody here knows was caught in a sheriff's sting. Went, he thought he was having a tryst with an underage girl and he met sheriff's deputies in a sting operation. That has not yet gone to court. But all of those guys, they, there was the promise of something that looked appealing. But what they got in the end was death. Now, you ask me, if Jimmy Swaggart could go back, do you think he would have changed what he did? I bet he would have. Jimmy Baker? Yeah. Ted Haggart? Yeah. You can't escape this, this process. It's simple, and sometimes for you and I, when we sin, it seems like no big deal, and it's simple, but it always ends in death. Sexual temptation, it's, it's a giant, if you will, in our land, and it's laying waste families and churches and communities, and the mighty among us, if you will, are falling to this giant temptation in the world today. The magazine you've got is called Salvo. It's put out by the St. James Society. I get a different publication that these folks put out. This was their second edition. It's an outstanding magazine. I don't know if all of you will like the humor. It has a lot of satire. The ads you see in there are not real ads. Uh, They're all humorous uh, portrayals of what the world promises. But it's an outstanding magazine. And this issue, each issue focuses on one topic. And the second one was on sexual sin. And I encourage you to take it home and read it. There's great articles in there that talk about the physiology of temptation. They talk about all kinds of things that are going on in the culture today. Take it home, read it. This is one of those things where you cannot afford to be unprepared for temptation in this area. It has become the key temptation in our culture today. All of us have a variety of areas where we're tempted. And if it's not sexual sin, it's other things. It's it's not that this is the only one, you know. Uh, Satan, he's a... What's the word when you say uh, you're not prejudiced against? He's not prejudiced. He'll get you with anything he can. And, And our own sinful natures, you know, there's a variety of things... Stealing, cheating, disobedience, gossip, greed, you know, the list goes on and on. We can be tempted, we can sin, we can fall in a number of ways. This is a key one, and I wanted to mention it specifically this morning. Because we know temptation's coming, and because we know we already have a sinful nature, and so we're kind of halfway down the road already, it makes sense that we need to be prepared. I'm going to read a few scriptures here. Let me start with 1 Peter 5. Uh, notice the phrases that these scriptures use. It's, they are phrases and they are words that uh, are powerful, if you will. They, they're arresting words. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, Be sober. That means be serious. Be alert and aware. Be sober. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith. Be sober, be alert, resist him. Why? Because you have an adversary and he's a lion and he's looking to destroy. You know, if you're a soldier in Afghanistan or or a Baghdad today, you're sober, 
you're alert and you're resisting because you know there's enemy all around you and that if you let your guard down, you're done. But Peter says, we're in the same kind of environment that soldiers in, in Baghdad today are in spiritually. We occupy that same kind of place. You cannot afford not to have your guard up. You cannot afford to not be sober, alert, and resisting. That's the attitude of a soldier in battle. And guys, we're in a battle all of our life here on planet Earth. When the disciples ask Jesus, uh, how do do we pray? And Jesus gives them a model for prayer. One of those elements was this. When you pray, lead us... Pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When you get up in the morning and read your Bible, start your day with God's Word. Do you start your day with God's Word? When you do, pray. And guys, Jesus says in the model prayer, which doesn't just mean reciting these words, but we ask God to preserve us from the evil that we're going to face that day and from the temptations that are coming up that day. It's a given. And when Jesus gave his disciples a model for prayer, he said, you pray to be delivered from evil. It's coming. It's around the corner. The temptation's there. The adversary is there. Pray to God to be prepared to escape the temptations that are coming your way. Pray about it before they come. In Job 31.1, Job's friends had accused Job of sinning. They said, hey, this stuff wouldn't be happening to you, these, all these pains and losses, if, if you hadn't sinned. And, and maybe you sinned through adultery. Maybe you committed transgression with a young woman. And Job says in Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job says, you don't understand. I've settled that. That sin for me is not an issue. It's not an option. I've already made a covenant with my eyes. I've decided I don't give those gals a second look or a third look or whatever. Job says, I haven't done that because for me, that's not an option. It's not been an option. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Do you see all of this implies intention and foresight? I love 2 Timothy 2.22. I ran track in high school and college and... I love this verse because it says, run. Uh, Timothy, flee from youthful lusts. Paul's going to say something a little different in Ephesians 6, which I'll excerpt some here in just a second. But I love this thought. Paul says, Timothy, when you face lust, you don't stand. You don't fight. You turn and you run. You get out of there. You don't see how long your resistance will hold up. You don't see how far you can go in resisting that lustful thought, whatever it is, whatever it looks like. Paul tells Timothy, when lust is on the line, you turn and you run. Do you remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife when she's pulling him down? What does he do? He turns and he runs. And in the arena of sexual temptation, lustful temptation, especially you don't stand and fight. You turn and you run. You get your track shoes on and you get out of there. You make like Roadrunner, you head the other way. Ephesians 6 is entirely different. Related to other sins, other temptations, Paul has a different word. He says you stand and you fight. Ephesians 6, arguably kind of the key passage in the New Testament, for spiritual warfare in the arena of temptation. I'm going to excerpt as I go through here to highlight some key verses, but in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. You're not relying on your own strength. You're relying on God's strength, on God's power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The devil's still working. And he's not the funny guy in the red suit, you know. He's a cunning, crafty individual who's honed his skill and knows how to get us and can get us through the world or through our own sinful impulses. But Paul says, put on the full armor so you can stand firm. Verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you can resist. Having done everything, stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm. Gird your loins with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
put on your feet the gospel of peace. Verse 16, take up the shield of faith. Verse 17, put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, be on the alert with all perseverance for all the saints. And let me just rehash a few of these. Strong in the Lord, stand firm, full armor of God, able to resist, stand firm, the word of God, on the alert, all perseverance, all the saints. This sounds like work to me. And it sounds like you've got to be intentional. And the key here, when you resist, the key, if it's not one of the things you've got to turn and run from, if you've got to stand and battle it, the key element of your weaponry is God's Word. It's what God has said. It's the truth. And think of this. When Eve was faced with temptation in the garden, all she had to do was one thing, and she could have got through. Do you know what it was? All she had to do was recite God's Word. God had said, if we eat, we'll die. That would be the beginning, and that would be the end of the temptation. And Satan could say something again. And remember, God hasn't spoken much that we know of at this point. So this may be all that she knows of God's word. God said, if we eat from the tree, we'll die. That's all she needed. She had God's word available. She could have gone through the temptation if all she'd done was hung on. The only thing maybe that she knew God had said, God had said, don't eat it. If we eat it, we'll die. When Jesus faces his temptation, Jesus, the second Adam, the new man, when he faces his temptation, you can read in the Gospels, he's not in the Garden of Delights. He's in a desert. Forty days he's been fasting and praying. And Satan comes and offers him the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And what does Jesus do there? He does only what you and I can do today too. He quotes God's word. And Satan knows God's word. So after that first rebuff, Satan quotes, he twists God's word to Jesus. And Jesus stands on God's word. That's all he does. He doesn't bring out his supernatural power. He doesn't make rocks into bread or anything else. All he does is what you and I today can do. He quotes God's word. And this is the thing. He knows his father. He loves his father. He knows his father loves him. And he knows his father has his best in mind. He knows that his father has established eternal joy and honor and glory for his son when he goes through this trial and this temptation. Remember Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured. But Jesus did just what you and I are to do. He quoted God's word. Guys, if you don't know the scriptures, you're not prepared for temptation. Because your preparation is knowing the truth. And it's knowing God. For you to be prepared to face temptation, you have to know the truth and you have to trust God. And, and if you're without either one of those, you cannot successfully face temptation in this world. What has God said? What's the truth? And do you know God well enough to trust Him? Do you know God well enough to trust Him? Uh, parents... I can't say this strongly enough. Uh, You have to. If you're raising kids that aren't adults yet, uh, you cannot afford to fail in educating your children to be prepared to face temptations in the world. You cannot be so naive to think your children aren't going to face temptations or your children don't have sinful natures. They're going to face temptations and they're sinful. And if you're raising children who don't know what they're getting into in this world, you're negligent as parents. You're negligent. You don't love your children. The book of Proverbs says you hate your children if you don't prepare them for temptation. Proverbs 7, uh, 6 uh, is the beginning of a story in which a father instructs his son about what's coming. This specifically, father's warning Junior about the the adulterous woman that Junior's going to meet when he goes out in the city by himself. And I love the way this is set up because dad says this, at the window of my house, I looked through the lattice. I saw among the naive a young man lacking sense. And then he goes on and tells the story. But when I hear this, 
I see dad's looking through a window. It's a box in front of him, isn't it? And he looks through and he tells Junior the story he sees transpire before him through the box, the lens, which is that window. When our girls were younger than they are today, we watched a lot of television, mostly movies. And for us, that was the window of Proverbs 7. And when we watched those movies, we discussed the elements of the movie so that our daughters could develop discernment. Is what that man said true? Where do you think this is going? Why are they doing this? You have opportunity every day with your kids to prepare them for the temptations that are coming their way. And it can be the newspaper articles you read. It can be the stories that occur in families you know around you. It can be with the movies you watch or the television shows. It can be any one of a number of things. But if as parents you are not preparing your kids for the temptations that are coming their way, you're negligent. I cannot say this too strongly. Our kids, we, every day, the scripture says we're in a battle. We're in, spiritually, we're in Baghdad. And there's snipers and there's bombs all over. And the the enemy is after us and our children. And if your children aren't prepared, you've done them a grave disservice. You cannot afford not to prepare your children to face the temptations that are coming their way. You must prepare them for what's coming. Let me wind down here on an upside note here. It's this, two things. The first is this. uh, Have a good time in the life God's given you on the earth. Enjoy all the things God's given you to enjoy on this earth. And I say this knowing we live in a fallen world. It's cursed by sin and death. I understand that. This world still, though, reflects God's glory. And there's still God's life in this world. James says, in fact, Bob quoted in Sunday school, I loved it, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing you enjoy in life, it's from God. 1 Timothy 6, 17, guys, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God is no cheapskate. And when God made that original creation, He put everything in the world, save one, for Adam and Eve to do what with? To enjoy Don't think God's holding good things out from you and that He's some spiritual meanie in the sky putting you under His thumb. God's given you and I tons and tons and tons of things. People, times, places, food, entertainment, you name it, to enjoy. So enjoy the good things God has given you and understand that comes from His benevolent nature. And if you're married, enjoy the kind of sexual life God wants you to you know sex is celebrated in the scriptures Proverbs and Song of Solomon I'm thinking of specifically but sex like the tree there's nothing wrong with sex sex is God's invention if you're married enjoy sex you should you honor God and you honor your spouse in doing so nothing wrong with sex we're talking about sexual sin and temptation it's not because there's a problem with sex in the way God intends it to be used and enjoyed that's all upside It's just that there's a big downside. Remember this. uh, The guy that invented dynamite, uh, he did it for good reasons, right? Roadways, and and he meant actually to save men and lives in the construction process. And so that great, very powerful thing, dynamite, it was meant to be used for good. But, of course, what can you do with that same power? You can use it for great destruction and great evil. Sex is like that. Anything that has power can be used positively or negatively, no matter what its original intention was. But enjoy all the things God has given you to enjoy. Be a Christian hedonist in that that way. Enjoy the things God's given you to enjoy because they've come from His benevolent hand. And then also be prepared. You know the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Guys, we are in a battle. We live in spiritual Baghdad. We have an enemy that's actively pursued, chasing us down to throttle us, to harm us, to kill us, and to short-circuit what God's doing in the earth today. I haven't mentioned many specifics because there's so many of us. We all have our own temptations, but just a couple things. If you Don't get on the Internet alone. Put your computer where everybody else can see it. Put a filter on your computer if this is an issue. Whatever your areas of temptation are, meet with other Christians who are asking each other the hard questions of life, caring for each other's souls in that way. 
there's numerous things you can do to safeguard yourself preemptively from temptations. And sometimes you just put the track shoes on and run. But be prepared for the temptations that are coming. Be alert. I used to be a roofer for a couple of years, and all our cups said, alert, aware, alert, alive. I'm working three stories up on an edge of a roof. If I'm not aware, I'm not alert, I'm not alive. The Boy Scout motto, the construction motto, whatever, be prepared for what's coming. And let me close with this. James 1.12. James says, Blessed is the man, woman, child, boy, girl, who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. These temptations aren't... God doesn't allow them to get you. God wants wants you to pass the trials and temptations that come your way because He wants to reward you. And James says, you're blessed because then God's free to reward you, to give you the crown of life. That's what He's after. God's not holding out good things from you and me in this life. He says, get through the trial, just like Jesus, Hebrews 12, because I've got good things and reward for you yet to come. So this is a huge, huge area, temptation and sin. We're scratching the surface here this morning, but whether it's temptation from without or our own sinful impulses, the Scriptures tell us, know God's Word, be prepared, enjoy the good things God has given us, but make it through those temptations so God can give us the kind of reward and life He means. Let's pray. Sorry, I knew I was going to run long this morning. Father, you've given us, Christians, those with your spirit, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, when we sin, it's not for lack on your end of preparing us for that or of giving us what we need to get around the sin or the temptation. God, help us to be as serious about sin as you are. In Jesus' name, amen.